0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clear Note Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. We're very happy to have all of you here today. Those of you who are here because of the spectacular, we especially welcome you. And each week our, in our worship, we... Um, actually, um, we sing praises to God, we pray, we hear his word read and then we hear it preached and that's where we take the scripture and we apply it to our lives and I want to say a couple of things about that this morning, that's a nice t-shirt, I had not seen them, stand up and show everybody your t-shirt. That's for the new album of the Psalms for the band. That's nice. You must have given a lot of money to get that. (laughs) Um, It was a Kickstarter campaign with certain incentives that overwhelmed my wife when we got ours this week. Well, she's overwhelmed with little things, you know. They gave us, I think, a little package of macadamia nuts. Um this last week, some of you know that there has been another so-called scandal that's come out, and the scandal is that there's a pastor that wrote a book, and in the book he quoted from another pastor and also from the Free Dictionary and Wikipedia and stuff. And since we're in an academic community, the issue of originality of thought and expression is something that academics, scholars, take very seriously. And even though this is a little bit weird on Bloomington's west side to talk about this issue, I want to say a few words to you before I preach. Um, I regularly have said to my congregations, well, to the congregations I serve, that I don't have any original thoughts. I don't have any original words. I don't make things up and I'm not creative, all right? And probably the closest I've ever come to any original thought is when I heard the expression hope springs eternal from the human breast, I thought about myself and I decided to change it to pest. Hope springs eternal from this human pest. All right? And that's original, and some of you thought it was funny, most of you didn't, and so that's an indication of what you get from me when I'm being creative or original. It's this... It's not real interesting, all right? But I would also like to say, in this church, we don't want our pastors original. We don't want our pastors to be creative. We love it when our musicians are. We don't want our pastors to impress us. We don't want our pastors to have deep thoughts that are expressed with the perfect words. So that everybody's sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I could be like Mike, right? Remember that, Michael Jordan? No. What we want is for our pastors to communicate so well that there's no escaping you coming under conviction of sin. We want them to get out of the way so that as you listen to the word of God proclaimed, preached, you're not thinking about them, you're thinking about your sin. And if I'm trying to impress you with my creativity, my intellect, my vocabulary... I'm going to get in a mess because you're going to be so busy thinking, how does he come up with those words and what do they mean that you're not going to be convicted of sin and you're not going to fly to Jesus? Now, when I say all this stuff, all of you who know me know, well, (laughs) Tim, I'm sorry, but, you know, the jackass is out of the barn. And you're right. My mother always used to tell me, why do you use such big words? Tim, are you trying to impress somebody? And that's a direct quote, and I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And every time I I was convicted of sin. And the good thing is I'm on blood pressure medication now. And this is good because my vocabulary is declining. I wish it were by my choice, but I find so much godliness in our lives comes by God forcing it on us rather than us choosing it, right? Now, one other thing. Why do we care so much about copyright and plagiarism? The reason is that uh, it is the way that we get our pride today. We get a copyright, we get a, we, get a, uh, we get a trademark, we get a patent, or we get published. And listen, I've lived among academics And I want to tell you the truth. The truth is, when an academic gets a paper published, it's because he has a good graduate student working for him. Okay? That's the reason. Graduate students are still young enough to have creative thoughts. Whereas older academics have gone to seed. And I've watched as my thoughts have gotten published by a a famous scholar, And all of a sudden, I saw how it works. I'm not saying all all academics do this, but you know, you might rise someday to the level where you are a co-author, but you won't take top ranking, right? And so all of us need to be more honest about the academy and what goes on in the academy we all borrow from each other. We all quote each other. We all tell the stories that our father told. I don't have hardly any jokes that I didn't learn from my dad, right? And we all love listening to Pat the Bunny be read 50,000 times. And the truth is, all of us are great copying machines and we just need to get off our high horse and begin to admit that we, if you want to know what I'm going to preach every Sunday, all you have to do is read Calvin and Matthew Henry on the text. That's it. Read them, and, and you'll hear a little bit different from me because I'll apply it in a different way because I live in a different culture. But there won't be any original ideas almost ever in what I say. Okay, And one final thing. Academics are so concerned that everybody gives them credit for the things that they've they've said, you know. He didn't credit me, right? And so they want us to stop in the middle of a sermon and say to you, uh, John Calvin said, said, or Don Carson said, or Don Carson said, or... Don Carson said... I once had... I once said something myself in my kitchen and had a man say, do you know Tim Keller said the same thing he said and he repeated back to me what I just said. I don't know what that is. Is that Tim Keller attributing me? I'm not quite sure how that works, right? It's a giggling excitement over pride and fashion. And it's just awful in the church that men who preach and shepherd you would tell you what academic degrees they have is inexcusable. It's inexcusable. And this is the perfect Sunday to say it, because we're studying the precious gift to us of shepherds and, and a stable and a manger. These are the messengers God chooses. There are very few books in the Bible that are like Hebrews. And like John, the vast majority of Scripture is actually Matthew and Mark. It's direct. It's painfully lacking in uh, style, literary allusions. You know, you don't find the Iliad in Mark, right? And God is pleased to do this. This is his habit. He does not want us stealing any of his glory. And so he uses Baptists and doesn't use Presbyterians because Baptists are better at giving God the glory than Presbyterians are. Now, try translating that, Jason. I don't know how you're going to do that. (laughs) Um, And, you know, when it comes to music, if, if everybody wants me to stop and say, now that idea was from... I realized when I was young that when Jesus taught it says that he taught them with what? With authority, you can say it, with authority. Come on, say it. With authority and what? Not like their teachers taught them. And so being a pastor, I thought, okay, how can I preach with authority instead of like other preachers? And I immediately realized that the principal way to, to remove authority from a sermon is to stop in the middle of it and to quote and to tell people who you're quoting. And yet that's what the rabbis all did at the time of Jesus, as Rabbi So-and-so said. And so the only times I do it are when I'm actually going to read something because I think it's so well expressed, or I do it all the time with Calvin, with Ryle, J.C. Ryle, and with Henry. And the reason I do it with them is I want to hold them out to you as an example so that you'll read them. I want you to know they're the people that I feed on, okay? And so I'm not going to stop in the middle of the sermon and say, this is that world-famous Don Carson, okay? What I am going to say to you is, God says this, God says this, God says this. And I'll often be quoting them. And if you think that it's wrong to not stop in the middle of a sermon and to tell you who you're quoting... How would you like it? Do you know what musicians do all the time? So the other night I came in for the spectacular, and I went up to uh, Andrew Henry, because I've been listening over and over and over and over and over, 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 over. I was up in Michigan. I just listened over and over, over, and over, 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 over again. It's a joy to the world. And I kept playing the lead solo from it, <laughs> because I thought there's not one extra note in it, you know, and that's the best lead solo, right? And so I said to Andrew, that lead solo was just Perfect. It was like Clapton. And Aaron was walking by. And you know Aaron. He, he, he sidled up to me. And he said, you know, actually, I told him to use that part from Joy to the World by three-dog night. <laughs> you know. So, so what is it? Joy to the deep in the deep blue sea. Joy to you and me. Come on, joy to you and me. Ba ba ba. All right. If I were the all right. Now, um, that's what musicians do: is they quote each other. And imagine being in the middle of a performance and having them stop and say, "Now, this is from Three Dog Night." <laughs> it's just stupid. This is crazy. No, we should not read sermons by Piper or by Tim Keller. No. And here I've just gotten done saying, go ahead, use people. Why do I say this? Well, because lots and lots of sermons just are, are people reading Tim Keller. And the reason we shouldn't do that is because Tim Keller's preaching to rich Asians in Manhattan. Who are single, most of them. And you're not single, and you're not rich, and you don't live in Manhattan. And so the application of God's Word to you is very, very different than it is to different congregations, let alone at different times. Sometimes I'll do it. I have read a a Spurgeon sermon once, but. We have to preach to the congregation we know. How would you like a doctor who had examined a perfect specimen from Manhattan that was a model and then came into the examining room and diagnosed your problem without looking at you? This is stupid. They have to see your symptoms. They have to see your body. You have to be humble and allow them to examine you. And that's the only diagnosis that's going to work for you. And so that's why we don't read Tim Keller's sermons. That's one of the reasons why we don't read Tim Keller's sermons. All right, let's hear the word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased." Because I, I want to make a point that comes from later in the story, I'm actually going to go ahead and keep reading to you from Luke 2. Um, and then it says, verse 15, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back. Glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard, and seen, just as had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here we have the account of the revelation of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ as it was revealed to the shepherds. And we begin with the statement, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields. The last couple of months I've told you that I've been reading books on shepherding. When I was uh, living in California, not honoring God. And God broke me of my sin and just made me realize how wicked I was. And I pled with him for mercy. God then moved me from California up to a farm in Wisconsin. It was on top of a hill every night. We could watch a beautiful sunset off the top of the hill. It was called Breezy Hill. Had an apple orchard. And it had, I want to say, about 125 dairy goats we milk them every day by hand i think 75 of them and getting into the routine of a farm where the duties are simple you milk the goats you feed the goats the goats comes to the spring they they give birth you help them give birth you go in and eat after your chores in the morning you eat at noon then you eat at night and then you go to sleep and this This house had uh, no central heat. All it had was a big boiler or something in the basement that you put wood into. And you hoped some of that wood would rise through the open grates into your room way out at the edge. And this is up in Wisconsin. And I mean, it was cold. (coughs) You wanted to get under the covers. And you didn't want to get up in the morning because there was no warmth to get up to. Food never in my life has tasted as good is when I was doing that work. Hard physical work, uh, nothing creative to it, nothing really interesting, but there were little children in that home and there were goats. And as I worked with the goats and as I lived in a home with the little children, what I realized was that there was no manipulation of me. There was no vying for preeminence there was no uh, jealousy and envy although (laughs) there was some on the part of the goats you know if you walked with your hands at your side they'd come up to try to nurse from your fingers right and sometimes one would headbutt the other to get at your fingers you know so there was some jealousy but comparatively it was an innocent time do you understand this And I realized that God gave this to me at a time in my life where I had just been blowing around by every wind of doctrine and that he put me in a place where the children were young and would love you as you cared for them and the animals would love you as you cared for them. That what you put out was exactly what you got back. And so I loved the children. And I loved the goats. And God healed me through the sunsets, through the cold, through the eating, through the goats, through the children. God brought order back to my life. And this was part of my discipleship. Now, it was not insignificant that the woman and the man who ran that home, Peter and Sharon, were godly. But I'm not sure who I would say had more of an impact on me. The care for the animals and the little children or the parents. Okay? Our godliness, is it, is it an aid in us and therefore does it go to the children or is it the simple act of having children that empties out half this sanctuary right before the sermon? A discipline we have chosen... That produces godliness. And you all know the answer to that if you've had children. You know, we have a spate of books talking about the sanctification of Christian marriage that we don't get married for love, but we get married to get sanctified. Well, yeah, that's true, and it's a nice way to talk about marriage. If you really want to get sanctified, have children. Right, Heather? Yep, yep. <laughs> Now, here we have out in the field shepherds. And shepherds are doing exactly what I did, except they're doing it to a different animal because there's no comparison between sheep and goats. Goats are goatee. Sheep are stupid. Okay? If you get infuriated by a sheep, It won't be because it was devious, it will be because it's just dumb, dumb, dumb. Whereas goats are devious, right? And so here are shepherds who are out in the fields at night, keeping watch over their flocks. Shepherds. So the last few months I've been reading books on shepherds because it's an encouragement to a pastor because what pastor means is shepherd, what a minister is is a shepherd. That's all you are. You're just a sheep shepherd, all right? You're somebody that cares for stupid sheep. And I'm quoting my father there. I thought I would mention just so that you know I'm not stealing from my father, you know, but he has a poem where he says, Lord, I am such a stupid sheep. So there, now you know where it comes from. So anyhow, congregations are sheep and they're stupid. And Jesus says he's the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I thought, well, I'm at a point in life where I need to be inspired by shepherds. And so I just began to read books about shepherds, right? And because uh, the first book I read was from over in the Lake District of England, just south of, uh, of Carlisle, where the Daubs live, and Mary Lee and I had the privilege of, uh, of going there for a few days, and I, so we know the area. There's just these huge, humongous hills, and they are covered with grass. And the sheep feed on the hills. We went down to Beachy Head. You've heard of Beachy Head? Well, Beachy Head is this huge down. It's green. It's grass. And Beachy Head's 550 feet above the English Channel and it's a chalk cliff, and to say it's vertical doesn't quite get at it. Beachy head, you see how this is rounded here? You see, you come up to the edge, and then there's a little bit of hint that you're about to go over the edge, because it's rounded, you see this? It's rounded. Beachy head doesn't have that rounding. (laughs) Beachy head, you walk right up to the edge, and then it's 550 feet, so it's where everybody in Europe goes to commit suicide. All right, 550 feet down, and all these sheep. And there's no, uh, there's no um, fencing. There's no barbed wire. It's just open, so you can just get out of your car and walk over the cliff, and you're gone. This is what it's like down in the Lake District, and it's filled with sheep. So it's just filled with sheep, and sheep are stupid. And so these men were shepherds. So there's no glamour to the job of shepherd. What is the glamour of somebody that is out at night keeping watch over their flocks? There's just no glamour. Sheep are not glamorous. It's not stallions you're guarding. They don't smell good. And when they're in danger, they're stupid. And so you 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 have to really kind of work at getting them out of danger and keeping them out of danger. And so these men were not home with their wives at night. They didn't have the warmth of a bed next to the woman they loved. But they were out in the field. They didn't have shelter from the storms. They were cold. They didn't have somebody cooking for them. They had to cook themselves. And they were stuck with a bunch of stupid sheep. And their job was to be out there keeping watch over their flock by night. What were they keeping watch over? Well, two things. They were keeping watch over people that would steal their sheep and they were keeping watch over animals that would steal their sheep. Because generally they'd pull them together at night so it wasn't that they'd wander over the edge of of beachy head. It was that And so in one of these books, and I have it up front here, written at the beginning of the 20th century in the early 1900s, *A Shepherd's Life, Impressions of the South, Wiltshire Downs, he has a whole chapter on the dark people. And the dark people were the gypsies. All right? Roma. And uh, how they would steal sheep. And it's just fascinating. People have always stolen sheep. It's very easy to steal sheep. Right? But also you've got, you know, David talks about how as a shepherd he was protecting the sheep and sometimes he'd fight off a lion, he'd fight off a bear. And those are the other predators, not, not simply thieves, but also uh, animals that want to eat. And this is what they're doing. They're out at night. They're dealing with the rain, the cold. They're dealing with the dark. They're dealing with stupid sheep. They're dealing with people that would steal them. They're dealing with animals that would steal them. All right. Shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then, verse nine, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And I think one of the words words in there is redundant or unneeded, and that's the word "suddenly." If an angel comes to you, why would you say, "And suddenly an angel came"? I mean, if you say an angel came, isn't that sufficient? You know. And an angel came, you know. And suddenly an angel came. It doesn't do much, I don't think, right? (laughs) The angel's the thing. But somehow, suddenly, and that means the angel didn't approach coming down the hill, but the angel appeared, right? Just instantly the angel was there. And this is an angel of the Lord. Angel means messenger, And suddenly, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And it wasn't enough that it was an angel of the Lord standing before them suddenly, but it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What is it to have the glory of the Lord shining around us? In Exodus 16.10, it says, It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And then, the transfiguration, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, with Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, and then verse 32, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, what? They saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. Okay, And so what we read here is not just that suddenly, not just that an angel stood before them, but that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then this little statement, and they, referring to these shepherds, they were terribly frightened. Why were they terribly frightened? You remember, I think it was Roosevelt who said, the only fear we have to fear is fear itself. I have to say that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) You know? You know, I was thinking about this this morning and I thought, you know, I think I can think of one man, he would have never been out there at night, he'd never be a shepherd. If he had been a shepherd, he wouldn't have been awake. He would have had somebody else staying awake for him. But I think I can think of one person who would not be afraid if an angel suddenly appeared, let alone if the glory of the Lord was on the angel. And that's Donald Trump. (laughs) I think if an angel appeared before him, he would think that the angel had been created for that moment. What's my point? Well, you can have a lot of opinions about Donald Trump, but nobody has any opinion about whether or not he's proud. To say Donald Trump is proud is like, it's like, you know? Yes, he's proud. So why were they afraid? Have you ever asked yourself whether you would be afraid? You should ask yourself this. You say, but everybody's afraid when they see angels. You say, why are they afraid? And I think of the Philippian jailer. And maybe the greatest non sequitur in scripture is where, you know, Peter says, don't worry, we're here. He's about to fall on his sword. He says, don't worry, we're here, which means he doesn't have to fall on his sword because none of the prisoners escaped, right? He's going to fall on his sword because the prisoners escaped. He's going to be executed for not keeping his prisoners in prison. He's about to fall on his sword. Peter says, don't worry, we're all here. And he says, what? What must I do to be saved? And it's like, dude, you just done got it. You just got saved. And all of a sudden, this man is prepared to deal with the most intense question that's deepest in all of our hearts if we're truthful with ourselves and if we're humble, which is that we're lost. And we're lost because we're wicked, we're sinners. That's why we're lost. It's why you're lost, and it's why I'm lost. It's because we know that God is holy, and we know that we are wicked. And you say, well, yeah, I'm prepared to believe that about you, but you don't know me. And I say, okay, did you have one of those thoughts this last week where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you resented somebody else's success? You resented somebody else's success. Isn't there enough success in the world to go around? I mean, can't you allow somebody else to have a little bit of success without resenting it? Please. So why did you resent their success? And you say, oh, well, I just know them, and I know they haven't worked hard enough to get what they've gotten. They don't practice more than an hour and a half every week. (laughs) You know, and they have a great husband, and my husband's a cad which is a nice way of saying something that I won't say. And so you think about this and you think, okay, well, that's just jealousy and envy. You know, that doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And I say, okay, how about the time this week when you took another man or another woman's life into your hands by the way you drove? And you say, well, I didn't mean to. And I say, but had... Had they died in an accident because of what you'd done, you would have been guilty of a crime of manslaughter. You say, well, what's manslaughter? And I say, that's acting in in a way without regard to the value of human life. You'd be a murderer. You say, well, I didn't intend it a fourth. I say, oh, really, you didn't. So you weren't angry. Well, I didn't realize it. And I say, okay, fine. So... You're not jealous, you're not envious, and if you were, it didn't matter, and and it doesn't matter how you drive. Do you even know yourself? Do you even know yourself? And you say, yeah, I know myself, but you don't know me. And I say, okay, that's true for many of you, but I do know myself. And you say, yeah, that's what I was saying. Not my brother nor my sister, but it's you, O preacher, standing in the need of prayer. Listen, these shepherds were humble men. They had a humble job with humble animals. They were out at night. They didn't have the warmth of their home. They had no shelter. And these shepherds, when they saw the holiness of God coming down on an angel, they were terrified. And the reason was because they knew that they were in the presence of of a messenger from God and that there was no hope, no hope for them, none. Remember how the Israelites pleaded with Moses to cover his face because just the reflection of God's holiness and his glory from the face of Moses when he came away from being with God was so overwhelming they couldn't stand it and they asked for him to cover his face. And so here these shepherds were terrified. And the account continues and it says this, but the angel said to them. So the but is in opposition to the terror, but. The angel said to them, so this is important because this is what explains why they shouldn't be afraid. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Okay, the reason they're not supposed to be afraid is that God is lowering himself To us, and not just to us and other Jews, but he's lowering himself to all people. Notice this, which will be to all people. Very clear, Gentiles, dirty Gentiles are included. That's you and me, except Bob. It shall be to all the people. Good news of great joy. Okay? For today... In the city of David, Bethlehem was the birthplace of both King David and King Jesus. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. You see, the reason they shouldn't be afraid is that this little one who has been born is going to save them. He's going to rescue them. And this is why I'm not sure that Donald Trump would have been afraid. Because I don't know what Donald Trump would think he needs to be rescued from. And I only use Donald Trump as a foil because I'm asking you, do you have any fear? And if so, is it just your mother I don't think most adolescent men and post-adolescent men in America fear anything or anyone other than their mother. And it's a pathetic thing when parents have not raised children to fear God. We have so many men today that have no fear of God. And so they're afraid of everything. Absolutely everything. How do I know they're afraid of everything? Well, because they never leave their living room playing video games. And they can't bring themselves to go outside. The only outside they ever get is a computer monitor. Which only tells them what they click on it to tell them. In other words, they're petrified of failure at work, of failure at love, of failure at having children. They're petrified of failure of absolutely everything. Their life is an absolute prison of fear. They can't even ask a woman out on a date. They're so impotent. And the reason is they have no fear of God. No fear of God. And so you, you try to tell that to their parents. And their parents hear you about how scaredy-cat their son is, and then what do their parents do? They coddle the son! They coddle him. And you say, what is coddle? And I say, it's the thing that produced every son who plays video games. <laughs> it's where you go, there, there, boy, nice boy, down, boy, down. There, there, boy, nice boy, nice boy, down. There, there, boy, nice boy, down. It's like cuddling him, rubbing his head, feeding his belly, putting him to bed, you know, going in and hugging and kissing him, getting him up, getting him a new video controller. That's coddle. And the shepherds, the shepherds had been raised properly. They feared God. They feared the messenger of God. That messenger had to say to them, don't be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy. And they say, what, a new video controller? A new gadget? He said, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. And those shepherds were godly, and we know that because it was good news to them that the Savior had been born. Does your heart beat for a Savior? For a Savior? A Savior? Is that what will take your fear away? That somebody will save you? And who is the Savior? The Savior is... Christ, the Lord. See at the end of verse 11. Christ. Christ simply means the anointed one. And so a savior, somebody's going to rescue you. And it's Christ. It's the anointed one. It's the one that's prophesied in all your, your prophets. And then that little word, the Lord. And look, in America, I don't know how to get this across to you. Because there is no Lord in our life. There's none. Our 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 father just falls all over himself, just being a servant leader every waking minute of his day, and trying to show you that he's not the Lord. And our governor just really wants to be seen as a servant leader too. And our president isn't a Lord, but I won't say why because you'll think I'm making a party statement. And Donald Trump isn't a lord. <laughs> and the police, you, you just have a video camera and film the exchange. And that reduces him. About the only thing we come to in our culture that approximates authority is going into a court when we're told, all rise, that's it. And so this last week, Talking to another pastor, Joseph, my son, I said to him, you know something? Personally, I've gotten to the point where I just don't ever wanna talk to pastors anymore. Because no pastors have any conception of authority and truth. It's just relationships and manipulation. You know, if I can get you to agree with me here and I'll cut slack on this text of scripture and we'll do some backroom negotiation. And, and we all know that what God wants is for us to be absolutely perfect in the eyes of our people anyhow, you know. And, and so you try to get into a debate with a pastor. You ever tried it? Nobody will rise to the occasion. You know, you try to argue with a pastor and he, he, he tells you that he's sorry you feel that way. You know, I, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. It's like, you know, you just want to, you know, here we go. You know, wake up, dude. Eternity's happening. But when you deal with attorneys, they are serious. And they don't play games with language. Now, I know Brian's going to say they do. But compared to pastors, they're, they're naive and innocent. I I kid you not. Why? Because attorneys get to the end of the case, they give their summary argument, and a judgment is made. And authority enforces the judgment. And there's no other place in our life where that happens. And so... I bring you good news of great joy for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And and we're like, okay, yep, I'm on board. Which is Christ. In other words, he's been promised to you. The Lord. The Lord. And these shepherds are humble enough that that sounds like good news to them. But I don't know how many Americans would think that having a savior who's the Lord is a good thing. I don't know how many American Christians love the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority. You know, the authority of Jesus Christ. We love the saviorhood of Jesus Christ, but what about the authority? And you say, oh no, 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 we all wanna obey Jesus. I say, do you really? So do you obey your mother? talking about my mother, I'm talking about Jesus. Well, do you obey your father? I'm not talking about my father, I'm talking about Jesus. I say, okay, do you obey the king? I'm not talking about President Obama, I'm talking about Jesus. I say, well, do you obey your elders? Would you stop it with all this? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus. So you don't obey your mother and you don't obey your father and you don't obey your king and you don't obey your elders and you're telling me that Jesus is your Lord? Really? No, no, no. We are a generation of rebels against authority and we hate it, but not the shepherds, not the shepherds, it sounded like good news to them that they would submit to the anointed one who would save them, that they'd submit to him. this will be a sign for you. So this is the good news. Savior, anointed one, Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now think about that. Why do we love the picture of Mary and Joseph in the manger? The oxen are lowing, poor baby lady. You know, The cows are mowing. Why do we love it? Well, we love it because we love babies. And we love it because it's so beautiful to see God humbling himself, such glory of the glory of the only begotten son of the Father, put in the most humble environment that there is. As a baby, he forsook not the virgin's womb. And the juxtaposition of the unbelievable glory of the only begotten Son of God and of manure, and the virgin's womb and childbirth and no room in the inn. And it's just such a beautiful juxtaposition. It reminds you of Edwards where he talks about the lion and the lamb, right? And we look at that and we say, well, there's no other way it could have been done, Right? It had to be that way because you don't put makeup on a pretty woman. And he is the glory of the Son of God. And so any earthly, uh, what do they call it, Uh, you know, bling. Any earthly bling would have been absolutely ridiculous and absurd. And so it had to be in a stable in the north, right? That's what we all think, right? But you know why he had to be born in a stable. It's not that reason. It says, This shall be a sign unto you. The reason is that if Jesus had been born normally, right, all you'd have to do is find the doula. And that's easy to do because she, she drives an orange Prius. And so you just go up and down uh, apple tree or orange tree or Orchard Glen, Orchard Glen. You just go up and down the parking lots of Orchard Glen. You know, well there's the orange Prius, and you go up to the door and you knock on it. And sure enough, the dude is there, and there's Jesus. I mean, think about it. What were they going to do? They're going to go into Bethlehem and start knocking on doors, or they're going to go to the inn and knock on every door of the motels. Is a baby born in here? What it says is, this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. In other words, the reason Jesus was born where he was is it was the only place that was just perfectly synchronous with the humble lives of these shepherds. They were at home with mangers. And they had never heard of such a thing as a baby being born in a manger and said it made it very, very easy for them to go find Jesus. This shall be a sign unto you. Isn't that something? And Calvin, right here at this point, says that the bread and the wine of the Lord's table are a similar sign. And he says, don't don't resist and don't be proud over the the pedestrian, the lowly, the humble ways that God reassures us. And he refers to the bread and the wine as being this sort of uh, kind of humble, kind of nothing way that God reassures us that we're saved. And here the shepherds are. It's like, are you serious? This is the king of the universe. By him all things were made that were made. In him is life, and the life is the light of men. He abhorred not the virgin's womb, you know. He is the only begotten of the Father. And you're telling us that it's in a manger? And he's wrapped in cloths. It's also very interesting that at this point, and I always try to get you to love John Calvin. I always try to do it and I make no apology for it. At this point, Calvin says something else. He says, he points out that these men, okay, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And so we think about glory to God in the highest and we think what is the glory of God in the highest at this moment? The glory of God in the highest is the fact that his only begotten son is born to a virgin in a manger with manure, with the cattle lowing, and with, with, with Joseph all, all alone. There's no doula. There's no doctor. There's no midwife. You with me? You with me? And this is what causes the angels, seeing this, to go glory to God in the highest. This is the highest glory to God. This that we've been describing is God's greatest glory. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Remember I was talking to you about knowing your heart and knowing your sin and not being proud? And that's why it says here, peace. Because when you have peace with God, you have peace with men. You remember I said, you like to say that you submit to God's authority, but you won't submit to any human authority? If you have peace with God, you'll have peace with men. If you don't have peace with men, you don't have peace with God. Remember, Jesus said, if you don't forgive other men their sins, your Heavenly Father won't forgive your sins, right? But peace, when it comes to you between God, the whole earth is at peace with you. You say, oh no, I'll be persecuted. Well, but your heart will be at peace. That's the thing I've learned from the God is Read book about the underground church in China. Unbelievable lack of bitterness on the part of any of the people that suffered all through the Great Leap Forward and, and the Cultural Revolution. Unbelievable lack of bitterness. They'd sometimes make excuses for the communists who put their, their loved ones in, in prison for 20 years. They'd, they'd try to explain how the communists meant well for the nation. It's just unbelievable. Peace. Peace on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see if this thing has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. (laughs) Is that what it says? I mean, why isn't that there? Isn't that what you'd say? You'd say, I want to go see if this has happened. But that's not what it says. It says, see... This. See this. And so, they came with haste, right? They came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph. And the baby as he lay in the manger. The baby. The king of the universe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, stinking of manure. And they saw it. And so what did they do? When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Who, who are, who's at the center of this story? Obviously Jesus, right? You can always say Jesus to any question about Scripture. All right, But besides Jesus, who's at the center of this story? The shepherds. The shepherds. And at this point, Calvin says this. And it's just so fitting for Calvin to do this. He says, this inestimable treasure, and this incredible treasure that's been deposited by God from the beginning in earthen vessels. And he's talking about the good news of great joy that a Savior's been born this unbelievable treasure that God has given us from the beginning in earthen vessels that he might, might more fully try the obedience of our faith. In other words, he says, look, he gives us the message of salvation from humble people like shepherds all the time so that he can test your faith. And you say, well, how does that test my faith? I, I'm all warmed up to it. It sounds good to me. I, I'm so happy you use shepherds. But Calvin says, this is to test your faith. And you say, why? And he says this, if then we desire to come to Christ, let us not be ashamed to follow those whom the Lord, in order to cast down the pride of the world, has taken from among the dung of cattle to be our instructors. (laughs) Calvin's talking about himself. He says, if you love the fact that he used shepherds to tell the good news of, of peace with God through the Savior, then don't you dare get angry about God sending me to you from the dung. Because he's testing your faith to see whether you really like God using this way of communicating to you. Remember, I told you at the beginning about working with the goats? I am a goat, obstinate, eating up shrubbery instead of grass, (laughs) head butting you, taken from among the manure. Every single one of your pastors, your elders, has been taken from manure, and God's testing you to see whether you're too proud to receive. The gospel from them. Do you see this? All of you, do you see this? Don't be too proud to eat out of the hand of a pastor or of a father who has been taken from in the manure. Don't be too proud. Because then you wouldn't have heard the shepherds, you would have thought they were out of their heads. Why would God send a message to me from men that have been taken from in manure? So those are the shepherds. Those are the shepherds. I think that there's hardly any place that's more beautiful in Scripture than this scene out on the field and then in the manger. And you know, we all think it's because it's baby Jesus, right? And it is. But it's the unbelievable humility It gives such glory to God. Listen, if you want God to receive glory in your life, don't ever take it. Don't ever take it. Because God will never use proud men and women. He will not do it. He will not share his glory with us when we're proud. (laughs) Isn't that sweet? Because otherwise, I'd be even worse than I am. So you pray for me. I will pray for you, and let's pray right now. Father God, we pray that you will continue to give this church a humble congregation that is willing to be fed the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus by men that have been taken like the shepherds from the north. Father, may there never be in this church A proud congregation and a proud pastor. May we humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man, even to the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.